Good job. Well, for uh, most of you, it, it shouldn't come as a shock that I am not senior pastor Mark Kring. Uh, he's away for vacation. He's getting some much-deserved R&R. Uh, my name's Kyle Denny. I'm one of the, the pastors on staff here. Uh, I get the chance to oversee our operations and connections, vague words, uh, but it just means that uh, I get to deal a lot with our finances, the, the budgets that we have, as well as a lot of the day-to-day -day operations, Maybe you haven't heard, we're building a new church, so uh, a lot of my time is filled with that new church uh, that we're, we're putting up. And then the other half is just getting a chance to talk with new people. So maybe you're new or maybe you've just been coming for a while and, and you don't feel like you're plugged into New Hope, would love to talk with you afterwards. Come find me or come shoot me an email or, or something, would love just to chat further about that. Today we're gonna look at a passage that was very important to Jesus. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, which you may have never even heard of. It's all the way in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book from the front. Um, and I'm just going to read the passage out in front of us. So if you wouldn't mind turning there, there should be some Bibles and the pew racks around you. Maybe you have that app you can flip through. Um, or you can steal your senior pastor's Bible. That's what I did. Maybe he's live streaming this. Maybe he's not. He may never know. Um, but if you don't own a physical copy, we have some on that back table. Those are there for you. You don't have to ask. You don't have to tell anyone. Just walk on by and pick one up. Would really love to give you a copy of God's word that you can read on your own. So we are in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. We start off with verse 4. It, it reads this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mights. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this passage is just bursting at the seams with treasures for our soul. But before we begin to examine and absorb this text, let, let me pray for our time together. Lord, I, I thank you um, just for all the people here, the people that would willingly give up a Sunday to, to come learn more about you. We, we lead busy lives, Lord. That, that's not new to you. I pray that you would distance us from the March madness or, or the spring break or the beginning of spring, the work, the weekend plans. Lord, just remove that from us. Please let us focus for this time on, on who you are and, and what you have to tell us. I pray, Lord, that you would just press with your spirit what we need to hear and that you would mold us into your image. It, it's in your son's Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Well, Deuteronomy was written a long time ago by this man named Moses. And if you're new to church, Moses was one of Israel's greatest leaders. And when this passage is being spoken, it's a very crucial point in Moses' life. He was just told by God that he's going to die soon, that his time is drawing to a close. And so these are going to be his last words. So he, he gathers all of Israel to encourage them. Now, these people that Moses is speaking to, this generation of Israel, have a very unique experience with Moses, a very unique relationship with him. The oldest ones, they would have been late teenagers when God brought them out of Egypt. So they would have witnessed all the different plagues, all the different signs and miracle, miracles that God used to free them from Pharaoh's rule. They would have been there as Moses' brother, Aaron, made them this, this great golden calf idol to worship instead of God. They would have been there and they would have seen Moses laying prostrate for 40 days and 40 nights interceding for them begging the Lord not to destroy them. 
They would have been there when they got to the promised land this first time, this lush, beautiful land that God was so desperately trying to give to them, only to have their parents and elders doubt the Lord and refuse to go in. They would have been there as the Lord commanded Moses to turn right around, to go back into the desert until this faithless generation died. For 40 years, they would have wandered in the desert until all of their parents and elders were buried in the sand or in caves. And finally, finally, God brings them back to this promised land a second time. And they're about to enter into it. Only this time, Moses won't be there. He's not gonna be with them. This, this faithful leader that has been there with them through everything. Can you feel how emotionally charged this passage is? Can you put yourself into their shoes and and feel the impact of what he's saying? Now, this book was not spoken directly to us as it was that generation of Israel, but it was still written down for our benefit. In the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is recounting some of the history, some of the things that he's led them through. And then starting in chapter five, he begins to give commands from the Lord. In the greatest one we see in chapter six. Starting in verse four, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moses begins this passage with a strong command. He says, listen to what I'm saying. Hear, O Israel. Now, growing up in my household, my mom had a very specific way of gathering this attention. When she would say, Kyle, Benjamin, Denny, my little ears would perk up and my heartbeat would start picking up a few more beats. And and I say little, but if she said that today, I would still cringe in anticipation of what she was going to tell me. But it would get my attention. Moses is calling out to get their attention. He's already been talking to them for five chapters, and he's saying, eyes up. This is important. But then he says something that seems almost out of place. The Lord our God, I'm tracking with that, that flows, the Lord is one. What? At first glance, that that really doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the passage. It's a foundational truth for the complexities of the Trinity, that God is one God and three persons. But why does Moses plop that right here when he's about to give the greatest command? What does it matter if the Lord our God is one for this context? Is it just bonus or a title or, or some lip service he's given to the Lord? No, it matters immensely. What Moses is doing is he's laying the groundwork. He's preparing the stage for this command that God gave him. You see, in those days, people wouldn't just worship one God. That was foolishness. Say you needed to farm. So you needed the God of sun to be present. Well, sunlight without water, really not helpful. So you needed the God of rain to be there too. Well, what about workers? Surely the God of fertility was important. So to have one God was to put all of your eggs in one basket, as it were. It was to not diversify your investments. Foolishness in the world's eyes, but very crucial in God's. Don't miss that. Now some will translate this passage, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. But whether it's one or alone, it it carries the same significance for this context. That Israel is to be devoted solely to the Lord. Leading up to this, we see Moses write in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. He is one God that can do everything. And there is no other God. He is sufficient, which is an understatement to say the least. Because of that, it allows him to write in verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mights. They they don't have to hedge their bets with God. 
They can commit everything to him. Man, how refreshing, how encouraging is that, that our God is big enough for anything we might encounter. Before we add in this bit about the heart, soul, and might, we, we really need to dive down a little deeper into this word, love. As I was studying, there, there were two important observations that stood out. The first is that this, this word that Moses uses, this Hebrew word, ahav, it, it can have a whole slew of different meanings in the Old Testament. But it's used in Deuteronomy in a very specific way. We see it consistently refer to a covenant commitment which is based in action. This love then is an action that's meant to seek out the well-being and pleasure of God. Now, I was racking my brain trying to come up with what the closest thing in our culture would be and and the best I could do is our wedding vows. We'll say, I promise to love you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in health or in sickness. There's this idea that we're going to seek the interests of the other person no matter what. Same is true of God. That's the first one, an action seeking out the well-being and pleasure of God. The second is that this love is in response to what God has already done. It's not a works-based love. God has already been blessing and protecting Israel time and time again, especially when they didn't deserve it. God delivered Israel from Egypt, from slavery, only to have them beg for a giant golden calf to worship instead. He's already brought them to the promised land once and guaranteed that they'd gain possession of it only to have them doubt and whine and say that God brought them all this way into the desert just to kill them. He then sustains them for 40 years in the desert where their clothes don't wear out, where their feet don't swell, where they never lack food or water, and yet they just continue to mumble and grumble against their Lord. This love is a response to what God has already done to the promises God has already made them. So if we were to put these two observations together, we'd see that it's meant to seek out the interests of God, and it's because of what he's already done for them. Moses then describes to the extent that we're to love with with three words. He says heart, soul, and might. He starts with loving God with all our hearts. He, He uses the Hebrew word lev, that refers to the inner man or the inner woman, our, our inner person. And it can be used to describe the, the seat of emotions, the seat of reason, or both, as is this case. There's an example a little later on in this book that helps show this a little more clear. Moses is trying to get ahead of Israel's thinking. There's this amazing land that God is offering them, but they have to trust God and his character even when it's contrary to appearance. So we see in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse 17, Moses says, if you say in your heart, your inner person, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all Egypt. Do you see the example of the inner person here? It carries both the feel of emotion as well as reason. There's anxiety and fear behind these words, but there's also a forethought of what's to come. We're going to battle against these people, and they're bigger than we are. They're more numerous. They have better weapons. And Moses says, no, they don't. You have God. Do not be afraid but, but you can see how this, this thought and this feeling are intertwined, how it can be our inner person. So when Moses says to love with all your heart, he's calling the people to use all of that inner being. You must love the Lord with both your feeler and your thinker. It's not just head knowledge. Moses doesn't stop with just their inner person, though. They must also love with their soul. How do you love someone with your soul? 
And how is that any different than loving with your heart? We see the Hebrew word nefesh used for soul, and it's kind of a weird word. It has a wider range of meaning, and it could mean physically a breath or your throat, but it also has a metaphorical sense from which we derive a person as a living being, our soul. For this context, think of it as our whole person. Again, there's an example early on in the book. This one is Genesis 27, where we see this word fleshed out better. There's this key guy named Isaac who who doesn't know when he's going to die, but it's probably pretty soon. And so he calls his son in and he says this in 27 verse 3. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat it, that my soul, my whole person, may bless you before I die. Now, just for the record, I can't wait till my my two boys are old enough where I can just give them a bow and say, hey, go get me dinner, please and thank you. That's essentially what Isaac is doing, but he's saying, I'm gonna bless you, son, with all of my person, with everything that I have. So much so that the other son that doesn't receive this blessing comes up to him and, and this is what's recorded. Then he the other son, said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? You see, it's this all-encompassing blessing because it comes from his soul. It comes from his whole person. So when Moses commands Israel to love God, it's not just with their thoughts and feelings, but with their whole person. It's their actions, their intentions, their desires, their life itself. It's all wrapped up into this heart and soul package. And we commonly see these two words used together in the Old Testament to show a full devotion to something. But then Moses goes one step further and he throws a cherry on top of it all. He says, not just your soul, not just your heart, your might too. We see the Hebrew word mayad for might. And there's only one other time that this word is used like this. And it's describing a king named Josiah that best lived out the command. So there is no unrelated example to draw from. There is no other verse that I can put up there. But it carries the weight of very, of abundance. When it's combined with heart and soul, it becomes an extension of everything that we have, everything that we are. Think of it like an emphasis. It's like underlining the word everything. We're to throw everything we have at loving the Lord our physical resources, our social resources, our economic resources. It it all gets put into this might that gets put towards loving the Lord. So we see Moses start on the inside and and slowly work his way out. Uh, I came across a picture uh, that kind of helps show this visually. He he starts with the heart. He starts with the love, the, the inner person. And then he moves a step out and he says, you need the nefesh, the whole person. And then he goes one more and he says, not just that, but the mayad, the extension of all that you are, the substance must be there too. Leave nothing out. Notice what this text doesn't say though. It doesn't say they should love the Lord with most of their heart, soul, and might. It says with all. Do you feel the weight of this command? Can you see what God is doing in this text, what he's asking for? Now, some of you may be thinking, phew, thankfully that's for those Israelites. I'm glad that Moses chap wasn't speaking to us. Seems a little bit unreasonable, especially with March Madness going on. And yet, this carries over to us because Jesus reaffirms this command for his followers. In fact, this is the first and foremost command that we're meant to live by today. 
Look up at the screen for a reference in the Gospel Mark. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 32 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. All right, well, as long as loving God falls between that hour and a half window every other Sunday, I think we can pencil that in, Kyle. No, no, no. Hear me, Kyle Benjamin Denny. We're to love our Lord, to seek his interests with everything in response to what he's already done for us. Now, this is going to sound rhetorical, but it's an honest question for you to chew on. Do you feel like the Lord has already done something mighty for you? Because why would you love him this way if he hasn't? I mean, has he done something for you that is worthy of your full, undivided devotion? For those Israelites, God physically rescued them from slavery in Egypt with signs and miracles. But he's rescued us from something even greater. I think there's something about being mildly sleep-deprived with two little ones at home and trying to deal with stress at work, stress at home, stress with my own personal ambitions that has brought me closer to my natural self than ever before. And it's ugly. Like I, I may see, seem good-natured and kind and patient, but you take away my sleep and I'm so quick to fall back into annoyance in anger, in bitterness, and impatience, and just a whole mess of other things. People keep telling me there's a reason sleep deprivation is used as a torture technique, and I get that. But sleep deprivation doesn't change my nature. It just reveals it. It just shows what I'm prone to, which is evil and selfishness. I, I can so clearly see how I'm broken and mangled inside. And I need someone to fix that daily. I need someone to transform that constantly. Do you believe that too? Look, you may fool yourself your entire life, but I guarantee you're just as broken inside. Maybe you can't see it or, or feel it yet, but if you throw a magnifying glass on your life, it's there and it's a problem. Look, that, that seed of evil, even if it's not big in, in comparison to other people, will eventually blossom into eternal separation from God if it's left unattended. God doesn't want that. Man, we, we rebel and fight and ignore and disobey God, and yet he still loves us. He doesn't want to be separated from us. He wants to make us whole. He goes as far as to send his son, Jesus, to take the punishment for all of these sins. That's what we were singing about earlier. What can seem small and insignificant to us had such a, a very steep price to pay. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, and then he willingly sacrifices himself on the cross to pay for my sins. He was separated from God the Father, whom he has known for eternity. It, it's hard for us when we're separated from someone we've known all of our life. But all of eternity, Jesus has known God the Father, and he was separated from him because of what I did. Because he loved me, he willingly went through that. And then not even death could contain him, our God is so powerful. He obliterated death from the inside out. And there's a day coming that we will see the full effect of that. So I ask you again, do you feel like the Lord has done something mighty for you? Has he already done something that is worthy of your full, undivided devotion?
Or is it just not that big a deal to you? Look, if you're not there yet, be honest about it. There's a reason we're supposed to love our God with our heart first and not just our exterior actions. So don't fake him, but keep seeking him and listening. If this is new news to you, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to explain it more in detail later. Moses continues on in verse six, he says, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. It's very tough to seek the well-being and pleasure of another person if, if you don't really know them or what they like or dislike, isn't it? Like, my wife and I are night and day on some of the things that we enjoy. How awful would our date night be if I never put any effort into finding out what she liked? Or worse yet, what if I totally disregarded what she liked and just focused on the things that I enjoy? It, it sounds kind of like a, a one-way ticket to the couch to me, but, but let's draw this out a little bit. Let's run with it. So I'm an early person. So I, I plan, I get some babysitters, and I plan our date for 7 a.m., bright and early. We get started, get going. I also like surprises, so I don't tell my wife that we're going to do this date. I just spring it on her first thing in the morning while she's still sleeping. We have a very strict schedule to follow, so there's no time for coffee or breakfast. That's not built in. We just grab some granola bars, and we head off to the golf course. And then we play nine holes of golf, and we finish it off with meat. We go to meat in Old Town, uh, Lansing, and we just get this greasy, delicious meat sandwich. Now, you get some grace when you're dating, but if I planned a date like that after five plus years of marriage, I'm guessing it's really not going to go well for me. My wife likes sleeping in even if she doesn't get to very often. She doesn't like to be rushed. She loves coffee and breakfast foods. She doesn't enjoy a strict schedule. She's never been golfing before, which might be a fun social experiment sometime. Remember that for later. But she enjoys eating more plant-based rather than meat-heavy meals. How much of a slap in the face would that be if I said, babe, look what I did for you. She's pretty sassy, so I don't think she would just take that sitting down. She'd probably say, oh, you did that for me, did you? <laughs> Coming to know someone takes time and effort. How much more so with God? Do you see what he's doing with this text? He's speaking through Moses to communicate that you can't ever hope to love God with everything if you're not thinking of him if you're not taking the time and effort to get to know him, if you're not putting his commands on your heart, are you making time to be in his word, New Hope? I know that's tough to do in our busy society, but, but you wouldn't consistently skip meals, would you? Why would you skip feasting on the word of God? He, he's the author of life itself. Don't you want to know what he has to say? Look, there, there's some reading plans in the back. If you want to jumpstart, just grab one of those. They're there for you. Or just listen to it in the car. If you don't have any time to read, put the app on it and just listen to a chapter. Or if that doesn't work, man, just read a chapter before lunch or before dinner. Find a way to put God's word on your heart. You won't be disappointed. We talked about loving God with our inner person and and we see this as actually an inner person benefit, an inner person prompt. What I mean is that if you put his commands on your heart, you're going to be chewing on his words all the time. Sometimes you're going to be thinking through what they mean, and sometimes you're going to be feeling what they mean. But it's going to give you a better opportunity to love God with your heart. Do you see how God is doing this? He's giving smaller commands to help accomplish the great command. So we start inside and move outwards, just like that picture we saw before. Moses goes on to say in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So not only are these commands, these words of God, meant to be on your heart, a part of what you're feeling and thinking, you're supposed to impress them on your children and talk about them constantly. 
That teach diligently is not just teach it once and be done. It carries the idea of impressing it by frequent repetitions. It's a sharpening process, much like they would have sharpened a knife back then. It's a repeated process that continues to hone the blade. As the children grew, this teaching would sharpen inside of them. It would deepen and broaden and come alive to them. But the way you teach them is very important. Look at this quote on the screen. This is by a famous Christian blogger named Tim Challies. He says, the parent is not someone who is to be looked at, but someone who is to be looked through. Even a parent is better looked through than looked at. The parent who simply teaches Bible stories does little compared to the parent who lives as if God's word is true. That is the parent who disappears into the truth he loves. That is the parent who points beyond himself, the parent who says, look at that, and points directly to Jesus Christ. Our enthusiasm shows. Now, I I know our children will have to make their own decisions for Christ. I'm, I'm not saying you can guarantee that by any means. But your impressions do mold. If you're loving the Lord with everything you've got and it's actually filling you, that's going to be warm and attractive to others. And I want my children to get every opportunity to see how good and gracious our God is. So they're supposed to teach them diligently, but also just talk about him all the time. Sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, rise up. Have you ever noticed that it's really not hard to talk about something that you genuinely enjoy? I, for instance, can talk about Pop Belly's oatmeal chocolate chip cookies with anybody that I meet. It's this perfect combination of like a gooey middle and and thick crust, and it's got all the right ingredients. It's amazing. I, I can just weasel that into a conversation. But you tell me I have to talk that way about meatloaf? It's just not gonna happen. Like I, I have such an extreme disdain for meatloaf. It, it's just weird. A, a loaf of meat, not natural, not me. Maybe I'm being overly harsh. Maybe you're someone that enjoys meatloaf, Pastor Mark. But it, it's not something that I'm going to talk enthusiastically about. Look, maybe those aren't your passions. Maybe your passion is football. Or, or maybe it's scrapbooking or working out or blank. Whatever your passion is, is it easy for you to talk about God the same way? Can you brag about God the way you would brag about your kids? Do you brag about God the same way you brag about your grandkids? Are you beginning to see how this love for our Lord needs to bleed through everything? This teaching and talking is meant to come from our soul, from our whole person. Moses goes on and commands Israel to put physical reminders on themselves and around them. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Frontals on your forehead. What in the world are those? Well, we actually don't have pictures of what they looked like back in Moses' day. But we do have what they later transpired into. In Jesus' day, they were called uh, phylacteries. And we should have a a picture to put up on the screen. That's a a Jewish man. And and the frontals of Jesus' time were worn daily at morning prayer by every male Israelite over the age of 13. They consisted of four crucial scripture passages, two in Exodus and, and two in Deuteronomy, very crucial passages to them. And they were written on parchment, and they're placed in these leather boxes. If you look at the picture, you can see this guy's wearing a leather box on top. Those would have the scripture in them. Uh, and they were, they're tied around his forehead, and they put one on their left arm, too. Now, whether this was exactly what Moses had in mind or not, it's a little irrelevant. The meaning is clear that they were to have a physical representation to help them remind them of God's commands. The last one being, he talks about putting it on the doorposts of their house and on their gates. 
This was not meant to be a personal secret reminder, but a very public and bold one. Like, how do you not get questions from strangers if you're wearing a frontal? Now, I, I openly admit that seems weird to us in this day and age to do some of those things, but we're really not all that different. I mean, don't we have that same passion for our sports teams? We might uh, uh, put up the MSU flag outside of our house or, or maybe the U of M one. We, we might paint our faces for football games or basketball games. Uh, we might put on those giant foam fingers and, and wave those around. So we still do the same thing. If you take our time, our schedules, those are very important to us. So we actually wear these little bands that have a clock on them so that we might never forget what time it is, that we might not be late to something. These commands are meant to be anchors and safety nets, prompts and reminders for us to bring us back on track. I'm not saying you should wear frontals, but but what are you building into your life so that when you drift, you'll be redirected back to God? What you see in this passage is that God gives them a command to love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mights. And then he gives further commands to help prompt them towards it. Meditate on the word in your hearts. Let let it soak into your thoughts and feelings. Teach them to your children and, and talk about them always. Build reminders into your life to draw you back to it. The foundation being that it's in response to what God has already done for them. Look, can I be real with you, New Hope? This is a safe place, right? We're family. I don't always love my Lord with everything. At times, I fall woefully short of that in many different ways. There are still flares of rebellion going off inside me, and sometimes I'd rather love myself above God I don't say this to lighten the intensity of the command or to give you an out. I do it to show you the direction of it. The direction is not, I shall love God so he would love me. It's, God loves me, so I want to love him with everything. We're not trying to earn God's love, but respond to it. It's not a death sentence to do this, but it's freedom and life. It's what we were created to do and it's what we get to do. I was talking with a friend this past Wednesday night and and he was voicing his concerns about how commands can have a very negative sense to them. And he's absolutely right. We we often think of them as burdens or, or things we don't want to do. But this command to love your God leads to life. It leads to goodness. It's not just this burden or or this chore that we have to do. It's what we get to do. Look, There's a joy in loving the Lord. And and when I fall short of that, I just want to get up and try better. He's been so gracious to me. He continues to be so gracious to me as he weeds out all this gunk in my heart and molds me into the image of his son. Has he done something for you that is worthy of your full, undivided devotion? Or is there a part that you're still clinging to? Is there part of your life that you're not willing to hand over? Maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your schedules or the way you spend your time. Maybe it's your relationships. But have you been trying to squeeze God in rather than give him the full reign of your life. Look, he's the only one worthy of it. We're to love our Lord, to seek his interests with everything in response to what he's already done for us. How have you been doing with that new hope? It's not too late. Don't push it off till after March Madness or after spring break. Do it today. Let me end just by reading verses four and five one last time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Let me pray.
Lord, I, I thank you that you spared no expense for us. Lord, that not even your son did you withhold from us, but that you freely gave us all things. And I, I pray that you would sharpen us, Lord, that you'd put that desire into us just to love you better, to love you with everything. Where we're holding back, Lord, where we're trying to keep a peace for ourselves, would you be just very, uh, very forceful in showing us that? Would you use your spirit to move in that way? Would new hope be characterized as a place where people love their God with everything? I thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives, and I thank you for your son in whom we can ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good weekend, New Hope.